Hello, and welcome back to the Guns on Pegs podcast. My name is George Brown, and I'm the editor at Guns on Pegs. As usual, I'm joined by Chris Horn, Managing Director of Guns on Pegs. Chris, how's it going? Uh, we've both been away on holiday. We have. It's calm before the storm, though, George, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And I should hasten to add, not together. We haven't been on holiday together. <laughs> <laughs> there'd be a, a bonding session team bonding session uh no we haven't but it's kind of this is a good time to go away though isn't it i don't know about others who work in the shooting world i mean obviously unless you get like grouse invites coming out your ears just getting away before the start of partridge season is is a good time yeah definitely i went to uh i went to wales for three days west wales that was my summer holiday this year <laughs> which is uh I went to the Wool Museum. The Wool Museum is good, actually. If any of your uh, listeners ever find themselves shooting with uh, Charles Grisdale, who I think is is on your books, they should definitely make a bit of a detour to the Wool Museum. So it's not far away, and it's uh, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> so, uh, so if you don't already know who our guest today is, you've got a guess on the basis of his voice and the fact that he goes to the Wool Museum in <laughs> Wales for some holiday. <laughs> um so uh for those that don't know um the chat we just heard is we're welcoming back actually we've only ever had two people on the podcast twice so you're an elite club uh and um you deserve your return today uh having recently written i must say a fabulous book titled one last song uh we're going to come on to that a lot in a bit in search Um, of one last song in search of in search oh, of one last song. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's okay. Uh, and um, but outside of writing that book, of course, you are editor of Shooting Times, um, mm-hmm. as well as being a contributor to many different magazines, Spectator, Critic, uh, many other journals. Um, you've got an incredibly knowledgeable head on some somewhat young shoulders. Getting older. I'm catching <laughs> you up. I don't uh, think age quite works like that. <laughs> <laughs> a very warm welcome to today's guest, Patrick Galbraith. Thank you, thank you. Who is your second returnee? So we we didn't properly intro him because of our mess up on the live pod, but it was Ben Randall. Oh, right. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't mean, think that really counts either. I think just standing there making cock jokes does it. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't me, by the way. That was that was Ben Randall, I assume, unless I've very much forgotten the last time I was on the air. I was that drunk. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was a, a rather chaotic live podcast, uh, which was a good laugh. Uh, no, it's really good to have you back, Patrick. And um, and having sort of been involved in this journey of this book, because we we talk a lot on text, uh, mm-hmm. I, I it's it's been fascinating to then read the book and uh, and and know just remember the time that you were camping on you know in that cave uh, and you know down on the foreshore wherever it was and and and. Um, and just sort of be a part of that journey. And then Was it on newest? Of, yeah. Yeah. And Listen, listening for corn crakes. Yeah, exactly. And on, on a kind of cut off island. I probably was relying on you more emotionally then than you actually realised when I was there. <laughs> right? And Marcus Janssen. Marcus Janssen of, of Shuffle fame, who was giving me all sorts of... He said to me, he said, I can't remember, it was March. I think it was March or April. And he was sort of asking me what kit I had with me. And he said, by three o'clock in the morning, you're really going to be fucking freezing. <laughs> and at three o'clock in the morning, I was really, really dying out there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember at the time thinking you're absolutely nuts. But now having read your book, it all makes sense. I mean, I don't think it quite gets across the hard yards you put in to create that content. But amazing effort. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing about, um, I think when you when you're writing something, when you're writing anything, 
you sort of have to commit yourself to like, you know, to, to getting that story at all costs and doing a topic justice at all costs. And sometimes like, you know, you do end up sort of becoming slightly mad almost, you know, the lengths that you go to, to, to join the pieces together. But, you know, I think when you look back on it, hopefully when you've um, created a piece of work like that, you feel it's worth it. So, so we're jumping ahead slightly because we're going to talk about this in a bit, but just so that we don't lose everyone completely, just just give people a very quick insight into what this book is about. Yeah, so this uh, book is, to give it its full title, is called In Search of One Last Song, Britain's Disappearing Birds and the People Trying to Save Them. Um, and I think I became very aware. People often ask, you know, where did the idea come from? And I think when I was editing Shooting Times, really, I sort of became aware of... Um, two things, one of which was the conflict around conservation. And the other thing was how much sort of deep knowledge, um, and that's not actually my term, there's a writer called Adam Nicholson, who some of your listeners will know, I'm sure, who um, in reviewing the book talked about this this thing, deep knowledge. And I sort of became aware that, you know, there were these people out there, keepers, uh, shepherds, um, you know, hedge layers, thatchers, who'd sort of spent their whole life living alongside birds that are disappearing. Um, and I think all too often, you know, we don't ask them sort of what they think, sort of both what those birds mean to them and how we can try and uh, sort of fight for their future. So that's what I wanted to do. So it was a real kind of roundabout journey from Orkney to West Wales, talking to all sorts of um, people. And uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was fascinating. Well, let's get into that in a bit. But uh, as, as everyone knows, we've got a whole load of correspondence. We're going to put you to some work. Uh, but before we do that, George, your favourite segment? Yes, uh, it's always my favourite segment because I like having a drink on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, so, <laughs> Patrick, why don't you tell us what that's, what's that you're drinking? So I was actually saying just before we, uh, to these guys, just before we, we went live, that I've got a kind of like Campari... Um, Essentially, what happened was I lost my headphones uh, for this, you know, which is necessary for a podcast. And I looked out the window and my neighbor is sitting on the wall smoking a split. And he's a really nice old guy. <laughs> but if you go out there, you commit yourself to like a 45 minute conversation. So I thought, fuck, I don't want to go out there. I'll just see what I can make. So I had some cherry juice and some Campari and some lemons and some ice. So I decided to make a cocktail. But I then realized I didn't have my headphones. So I had to go to the shop anyway. So I got stuck <laughs> talking to this guy while he was mid split. Um, but anyway, it's the it's the this Campari cocktail of of no name, but I'll make it again. It's good. Cherry lemon Campari and some um, sparkling water, if any, and some mint actually, some mint <laughs> um, and a bit of lemon. Yeah, so it's good. I recommend. I'm, I'm trying to pick. I'm trying to imagine the taste. I mean, it should definitely be called one last cocktail, shouldn't it? <laughs> well, I hope there's going to be more than this. I've got to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the last time anyone's going to make it. <laughs> um, and you, so you resisted the temptation to join this guy with this spliff, obviously, for for the sake of coherent conversation. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah. No, I, he's a very nice guy, actually. It's, um, but yeah, he's always he's always uh, he's always out there. And the police sometimes stop to speak to him because he knows exactly what's going on in the area, but they never <laughs> bring up his cannabis use with him. So it's a kind of, you know, I don't know. So. Possibly, I possibly shouldn't say that. I've got Camberwell uh, police on, you know, coming coming round. But no, it seems to be a symbiotic relationship of sorts. He's the equivalent in your book of the sort of people who know about their birds in their, yeah, in their part of the world. For, <laughs> for sort of Camberwell uh, social, so neighbourhood watch, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Amazing. Maybe that's the next book. What are you guys? Uh, you look like you're having some sherry or something there, George. Or maybe that's just the glass. Well, no, actually, on the last podcast that we did, I promised that this time, instead of having 
single malt scotch whiskey, I'd have a glass of rosé just to change things up a bit. And there was a bit of a hairy moment where I, because I only came back from holiday yesterday, I thought maybe I didn't have any in the fridge. But happily, yes, I have got a nice... That is a hairy moment when you look in the fridge and you've not got any rosé. Yeah. Um, so I've got a, a Provencal rosé bought brought from that uh, very fine wine merchant Waitrose and Co. Um, and yeah, it's very nice. Very enjoyable. It's It's been absolutely hosing it down with rain here all day today. So it feels a bit weird to be drinking rosé rather than scotch. But a... Rosé in the rain on a Wednesday. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. But a promise is a promise. <laughs> It's, it might be raining, but it is so muggy. I was in London uh, this morning for a Country Food Trust trustees meeting, and it was I was running back to the tube because I was worried it's going to be late for this. And it, oh my god, it's warm! So I've gone for a glass of white wine, cold white wine, which, having done that journey back, is very welcome. Um, and having a uh, having just been to Bone in France, uh, couldn't be more of an English pronunciation. Bone, Bone, uh, but. Um, Wine's a bit of a passion of mine. I've got, uh, I've actually got something quite cheap and cheerful, which is an aligote, and there's not many. So aligote is a type of grape, uh, and they do grow a little bit of it in a very much dominated Chardonnay region uh, around there. And it's about, I think I paid ten euros a bottle because the guy, the winemaker, owned the Airbnb we were staying in, and it's an absolute winner. So it's one of those ones you find, and then you go, brilliant, I'm stocking up. So we filled up every last space in the car with this and some of this red drove home and the dog had less space on the way back than it did on the way there and it's perfect <laughs> did i tell you about that my parents went on a on a booze buying trip to uh to france once when they had a big kind of seven-seater people carrier you know back when we were kids uh yeah, and the, yeah. the car broke down uh en route from burgundy to calais um and uh so they they called in the the um the recovery service and they hitched it up uh, and off they went to the ferry, but they stopped en route. They made the guy stop to buy a corkscrew. And my parents and their <laughs> friends just sat in the car being towed along, getting absolutely blotter <laughs> on all the wine they bought. <laughs> I don't know if I can broadcast that. They might might not thank me for it, but I thought I'd share it with you guys anyway. <laughs> you, presumably you've got to drink the right amount because when the ferry pulls in the other side, You've got to make sure you're then sober enough to get home. Actually, you're not far. Well, it had to be towed off the other at the other end, and then they just parked it of and got a taxi home. Winner. And the car's still there to this day. <laughs> if you haven't seen that, yeah, it's got loads That's of wine. Previa in <laughs> I like the fact that we've both gone for wine, George. This is a new sort of uh, sophisticated us. Hey, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I've always had a sophisticated drink, of course. It's um, it's yeah, the lack of, of supermarket it's... lager that's uh, changed. <laughs> uh, I don't know, maybe. Right, so Patrick, uh, our first uh, listener correspondence section is called Whose Bird Is It Anyway? And it's where we ask our listeners to send in their shooting quandaries and queries and questions and we try and help them out. Uh, So this one comes from somebody I've decided to call Lazarus. And he says, I recently came across your podcast and it's a great listen for someone who's new to the world of shooting. I'm finding it both educational and entertaining. So keep up the good work. When I say new to shooting, I do mean very new. It's probably a midlife crisis and the reevaluation of life during the pandemic. But I've started to tick things off my bucket list. This year, I started shooting lessons, and whilst only on the clays at the moment, I'm very keen to eventually go game shooting. 
My quandary is around telling your family and friends that you're embarking on this new adventure. The challenge is that instinctively, my family and friends are very skeptical of shooting. The portrayal of guns in the media, whether it's US gun culture or recent gun crimes in the UK, does not help that view. Plus, game shooting tends to be seen as an elitist activity from a bygone era. So the dilemma is very simple. Should I say anything about shooting and what I'm up to, or should I keep a low profile and not really say anything? I actually had it when I took up a BMX riding <laughs> after, uh, after the no, mid-pandemic. Mid I actually had a very similar thing. Um, but I was, I was having dinner with um, my girlfriend's father and some of his friends. And he brought up this BMX riding and he said that really it was quite pathetic. And, and I said to him, but not as pathetic as that model airplane building that you did. <laughs> he went completely mental. Like it was, a, you know, but, but, but he does do that. And I do do my BMX and we both get a lot of pleasure from it. So I think what I'm saying is that, you know, if it means a lot to you and you enjoy it, then you've just got to, you've just got to run with it and uh, educate people about the virtues of shooting as I educate people about the virtues of bmx <laughs> i love how you've likened bmx to this dilemma they are inherently very similar though obviously <laughs> <laughs> i mean does bmx have conservation issues and sustainability problems i uh the, the big threat to bmx as you'll know is the affordability of skateboard and also the fact that skateboard is seen as slightly cooler um <laughs> I don't know whether that's similar to fishing and shooting or, or, or whether there's no comparison to be made at all. But. Do you get like anti, anti-BMXs running across? <laughs> yeah, you definitely do. Like it's all, you know, linked up with, you know, no skating and all that yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. But I think like as it might, what I would say genuinely is that um, it's often surprising actually about how people, I mean, maybe talk about this a little bit later, about how people aren't as anti-shooting as one thinks. Um, yeah, and that everybody has an in so like you know i've got a lot of friends who aren't really very keen on shooting but they are very keen on food so sort of game ends up being you know i mean i had a a lunch party like two or three weeks ago and uh we were eating muntjac and nobody there shot actually apart from me but everybody was really keen on the muntjac and a lot of people knew quite a lot about deer as a as an ecological issue um so yeah i think it's good to just be uh to be to be out there and it, and it raises interesting talking points for sure yeah, I, th I think the, the, the obvious wins are, well, if you're shooting game and it's ending up on the table, you've got the life of that bird from start to finish as opposed to, say, a chicken. Uh, you've got the fact that the meat is lean. Uh, you've got the social economic conservation benefits of that right the way through. Um, it's something to be hugely proud of. But I do know what you mean. This guy, it is quite nice to have. I, I often, I'm sure we all do, find ourselves in sort of, you know, uh, drinks party conversation with like a, a, a distant cousin of, of, of your of your wife or something and, and and find yourself in, right, justify your existence, boy, type scenario. Uh, and, and you do need these sort of quick things to reel off just to remind people, actually, hold on a second. I feel odd you questioning what, we, what I do, but no, this is the reason. Yeah, I mean, I had exactly that situation on the plane on the way to Spain. Um, I was sitting next to a guy and he, we, he, he got talking and asked what I did. And I'm always a bit nervous in those situations. And sometimes I just say, I'm a, you know, I'm a journalist and try and leave it at that. But uh, this guy... Um, I decided for whatever reason, I might've had a beer that, uh, I was going to go, going to go full in and said, yeah, I write about shooting and fishing and that kind of stuff. Um, and he went, Oh, that's really interesting. Really interesting. Uh, and about 15 minutes later revealed that he was a vegetarian. 
Uh, <laughs> oh God! Um, but you know, he was completely, you know, open to game shooting as uh, you know he wasn't opposed to it in any way, um, which was really interesting. Often, vegetarians and, and vegans are sort of more receptive to the idea of um, of hunting food, as it were, than other people because they've often thought a lot about what they eat and why they do that. I mean, mm. there are some people who are just kind of like. Uh, slightly puritanical about the whole thing. But, you know, lots of my friends who are vegan and vegetarian, I have lots of friends who are vegan and vegetarian, um, are into the idea of sustainable eating. And they do recognize that sort of game can be part of that. And actually, when we start asking ourselves questions about, well, how sustainable is this uh, game that we've harvested, um, you know, from this shoot, then I think, you know, that that's quite interesting and leads you to quite interesting places in terms of thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. I do want to come back to that exact point, actually. Um but I think that for this guy here, to, to sort of summarise for him, he really shouldn't be worried or ashamed. I think the Countryside Alliance always use an argument that a couple of dead pheasants versus a 400 dead pheasants is, is, is kind of the same thing. You're either against that or you're okay with it. It doesn't really matter how many. So it's not about bag size or that sort of thing. It's just the idea of going shooting. So be proud of be proud of what you do and just know exactly what Patrick says, that most people simply don't care. They're just not really knowledgeable on it yet. So share with them the knowledge that you've built and go from there. And if they really got an issue with it, you'll probably find you've got no hope anyway. Very true. And I also, you know, on the sort of elitist activity thing, I mean, there is an element of that, isn't it? But um, I think one partly that's part of the appeal sometimes is the the silly clothes and the tradition and all the rest of it. Um, but uh, would it be absolutely terrible of me to say that he should get them to listen to the Guns on Pegs podcast and read the Shooting <laughs> Times and uh, get a real feel for what shooting's actually all about? It's really funny. I mean, you know, I like... Um, I One of the things I enjoy about field sports is the sort of cultural and social diversity that comes with it. I mean, like, and I mean this completely genuinely, that, you know, in my local park... There are lots of people who fish there uh, for carp. There's a big carp fishing scene, uh, and that is a world away from uh, your average field reader and possibly your average guns on peg user. You know, I was down in Wales shooting last week, uh, and there were lots of Welsh-speaking beaters and pickers up there. And there's, you know, so so it's a pretty shooting's a pretty diverse and eclectic place. Really, we had a very good piece in Shooting Times recently on that and how diverse and welcoming is shooting. Yeah, I, I actually read that piece. I thought it was a very very good piece, um, and. Uh... Your welcoming is something that the, the shooting community always will be. And I think that's partly because we feel like we need friends and we just want to bring more yeah. and more yeah, people yeah. in. Um, and, uh, you know, diversity is maybe a slightly different kettle of fish, but something that's improving all the time. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I'd say shooting is more welcoming than it's ever been in my experience. Uh, and I, I think it's one of our massive plus points. I love it, actually, when you're out on days and you always find people swarm towards someone who's quite new, really trying to sort of get them excited and get them involved. And it's epic, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like if you've ever seen anybody shoot their first bird on a on a driven day, um, you know, the the joy that everybody who's out on that day shows and the congratulations and everybody from, you know, the the person who invited them to the lowliest beater. Uh, you know, the most junior beta, everybody is thrilled for them. Absolutely. So, yeah, just crack on, I think, is the is the general response there. Um, use the, the food and the sustainability um, and uh, don't be ashamed of, of wanting to get into game shooting and, you know, give it a go. Um, that's our general message there, I think, isn't it? 
Because once yeah. you're in, there's no going back. You're hooked. <laughs> Indeed. Right. Let's move on. Uh, Chris, have we got an unpopular opinion this week? We have. And this one comes from someone that George has called Luigi. Uh, and you're going to see why George has called him Luigi in a second. Uh, he writes, uh, my unpopular opinion is that new London best guns are no longer the best guns that money can buy. I feel that the price tag reflects the cost of operating a premises in London and producing a hand-built gun at a snail's pace, rather than costing X because it is the best gun that money can buy. London guns probably were the best guns that money could buy in the late 1800s and early 1900s, but is this really still the case? Is the current business model and the inherent inefficiencies the reason that a London gun costs so much? I'm not even sure how much is done by hand in London anymore, and is hand-built better or best in this day and age our boss purdy in holland holland et al at the top of the tree anymore for example if you want the best engraving or best timber would you get better from the likes of parazzi kriegoff beretta piotti or maybe even the blaza custom shop don't get me wrong i've always dreamed of walking in the door of boss and co to order my new pair of guns in the morning and going across to wesley richards or rigby's for a new rifle after lunch but I now feel that if I was ever in such a financial position, that my money would be better spent on the continent rather than in London. Debate. Hmm. Patrick, you were sitting at lunch the other day with, uh, with Franco Beretta, weren't you? We were actually having a, a, a pastry. It was, it was in the morning. <laughs> we were having a coffee and a pastry. I do, uh, I, I do apologise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was meant to be lunch, but he turned up um, early, funnily enough, and then summoned, summoned me. But um, I... <laughs> said to him essentially just that but in slightly fewer words don't you think um that, that that you know london gun makers haven't innovated and essentially you get the same gun now as you got 100 years ago and he said 100 percent. and what he wants to do with holland and holland is to innovate you know is to be bold and to do what beretta have done really um so, so for anyone who doesn't know uh, beretta bought holland and holland. yeah sorry yeah 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 so beretta <laughs> bought holland and holland um, and you know, I think, I think it's a really exciting time for Hollands to see what they come up with. So I think absolutely. And I think, I think people, um, are getting kind of cannier and cannier and they are realizing that actually, you know what, a Parazzi is a hell of a gun. Um, and you can get what you can get eight Parazzi's for the cost of a Holland and Holland. So, um, yeah, so I think we need to hold those guys to account and say, come on, come up with the goods. What are you going to do? That's exciting. Um, can I just add a little bit of info? Cause I think. Luigi here, who I think George is obviously just assuming is Italian and has a preference. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I think Luigi here might be confused by the term best gun. And so for anyone else, uh, a best gun is simply what the London gun makers refer to as their best item. So it doesn't mean that they think these are the best guns. But for example, a Holland Holland Royal is what they call a best gun. Uh, and anything other at Purdy than a sporter or a trigger plate is a best gun. Uh, and, and Boss, are, their strap line is makers of best guns only. And that just simply means that they don't have any others. They just make essentially bespoke custom guns. Uh, so that's what they mean by best guns. And you can have like a pair of best guns. Well, they're not doesn't mean they're the best. But um, it does obviously come from back in the day when these were just simply the best and there was no argument about it. Um, I suppose the argument now is, 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 uh, is, is machine made better than handmade? <laughs> and... Good luck doing that in five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's people I know who go around with purdies and a screwdriver for when the gun breaks down. <laughs> that is, you know, I used to, I used to have a very cheap 
um, 1980s Porsche. And when it worked, it was a delight. When I used to have to stay the night at a service station because it didn't work, <laughs> it wasn't such a delight. So, you know, for my money, uh, the likes of a Blaza or Parazzi is a, is a hell of a, hell of a piece of kit. Yeah, I think, I think there's, a, there's an interesting question about what your definition of best is as well. And if you mean most reliable and you know, most exactingly, you know, most precision made and, and all that kind of thing, then um, maybe they're not. But, uh, you know, we, we ask a question in the census, don't we, Chris, about if you had infinite money, who would you get to build you a gun? And it is still the case that Purdy come in at top, uh, Holland and Holland in second place, Beretta in third, interestingly. Really, that is interesting. And then Beretta do make some very nice guns. You know, yeah, SO10s. Really yeah. Yeah, so yeah. sixes are yeah, beautiful. and and then boss and yeah. and then boss at fourth in, in fourth. Um, so it yeah, I mean, your definition of best is is a completely individual thing, and for some people having that um, handmade, completely bespoke thing using ancient techniques is is what they value the most. In fact, you know, apparently for most people, um, I guess it's like if you wanted a really, really, really accurate watch, you wouldn't buy a Rolex, would you? You'd get something you, space age and digital. Buy a Casio. Yeah. A Casio or an <laughs> yeah. Apple watch. Yeah, exactly. I, I, do, I do think, and I don't know, I mean, this is sort of pretty hard to prove this one way or the other, but I think we are in an age of sort of um, where functionality and reliability is sort of seen as, attractive so you know i think like audi for example is going through a real moment at the moment um you know and if you look at like just kit as well in terms of the clothing that we wear and things people want stuff that really works and i mean you look at the likes of shuffle shuffle are doing really well with technical kit that 15 years ago people wouldn't have worn in the field yeah very um, true so and i think that's leached i think the scandinavian stuff particularly i mean Five years ago, I went on a moose hunt in Scandinavia. Oh, yes. You spoke about that on our last podcast. Did I? I mean, yeah. I still it stayed with me, just freezing my balls off. And, and, you know, I was looking at the kit these guys had. But, you know, we use a lot of their kit now. So it's quite interesting how Keeler doing so well and Sealand doing so well and Parazzi doing so well. Do you think? Do you think that's because if you spend all this money on ever increasing price of a day shooting, you just don't want something else letting you down? You want to be comfortable, warm. You want to have a gun that's not going to go bam, click type thing. You know. I think so, but also people want to shoot well, and I think that's a bit of a new thing. So, like, you know, the number of like eighty-year-olds I know who are like, "Oh, I've never had a shooting lesson. I wouldn't ever do that." Um, you know, and you think, and you spent, you know, seventy years shooting like shit, kind of thing. Whereas now, people <laughs> who take it up. Uh, they want to shoot well, and as you say, I think that's partly because shooting so expensive. So it's, yeah, it's I don't know, it's really interesting. But also, also, I think that people who come from come into game shooting through clay shooting, where being accurate is a super important thing, then yeah, you know that yeah. then then they want to be accurate when they're shooting game as well. Also, I think there's an ethical thing as well there. Like I, I think people want to kill birds uh, efficiently and effectively nowadays, which you know you do to a greater degree with a gun that fits you. So. Um, but bring, so bring it back to this argument though right at the top of the game obviously a purdy holland whatever like they're going to be as good as anything else the the, the the difference really is they are but what i would just say is that a lot of people are knocking about with like inherited purdies or inherited hollands and like you know fine if you go and get the gun fitted for you sort of thing but you know yeah, if your granddad was a tiny little man and you're a huge bloke using your crabs. You know what I mean? It's like it's a bit weird. You don't wear your granddad boxer shorts or his trousers. So, you know, they wouldn't fit you. So, yeah. My grandfather's a very well endowed man. I wouldn't wear his boxer shorts. That's, that's nonsense. I've got no idea. Just for, uh, <laughs> 
Um, I think the, the point I've always made when it comes to Purdy's and Holland's is this is jewellery. It's got nothing to do with guns at the end of the day. Uh, if, you, if you just wanted a gun, you'd go and buy like a Beretta Silver Pigeon or a Browning 525. Like that, that's what, if you just go, like your average mate who pops up going, so I want a new over and under, my budget's like 1,500 quid. You're like, well, you've got an option of two. Uh, at this level, it's got nothing to do with the idea that it's got a trigger and it goes back. It's everything to do about the feeling it gives you when you buy it. And therefore, whether it's machine made, hand built, got this engraver or standard engraving or laser engraved or whatever, it's down to what you like. And it's the same with watches. Uh, and so I think that this is just this guy's opinion. I'd say it is unpopular based on the census uh, results, <laughs> which everyone wants a Holland or a Purdy. Uh, but on that basis, you know, he's just shared his opinion. There's lots of other people that will agree with him and there's tons that won't. Yes, very true. And actually, interestingly, you know, fifth place is Longthorn. So it's not uh, all about um, it's not all about handmade stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Some people yeah. really value that high tech thing. And if you can do high tech with a flourish, then you're on to and be british in their case that's got to be why they're in there at that position well yeah nearly all the others in there are, uh, in the top 10 are british there's just uh well, we've got parazzi at seven beretta at three and browning at six so yeah um six out of the, the big name the big names plus british yeah names or makers so yeah he's he's wrong and not wrong at the same time isn't he there yeah but he, but the results are it's unpopular and we have to decide <laughs> <laughs> yeah statistically you're wrong <laughs> <laughs> patrick where would you go if i gave you 250 grand right now and i said you've got to have a pair of guns where are you going i would go to Parazzi. would you yeah i'd get the i'd get the damp that's coming through my bedroom wall uh after that. and probably still have some change i hope uh good you could buy a day's shooting and take us as well <laughs> Indeed. Right. So this is the stage in the podcast where we'd normally have our shooting heroes section, but uh, this one's a little bit different, isn't it, Chris? Yeah. So so we get quite a few shooting heroes. And what we loved about this one is that it's basically saying there are loads of people that aren't heroes and I want to name who they are. <laughs> so That's we, we, we loved it. Yeah. Um, so he says, I'm quite new to driven game shooting, having not come from a shooting grab background by chance a couple of years ago i picked up a, a few guest days on a syndicate nearby in north yorkshire uh, through a contact made using guns on pegs as it happens brownie points there uh, and i was lucky enough to be invited to join the syndicate the season after this invite also came with the inevitable list of work days for the off season having now spent a couple of seasons a close seasons with them it's clear that most shoot members fall into the same categories when these inevitable work days roll around and he's gone and listed the categories so he calls them first of all the first category the, the minibuses they carry everyone he then says the next category is the blisters they only appear when the hard work is done <laughs> the noodles they they think all jobs take two minutes the wicket keepers they put on gloves and stand back <laughs> And by far the most common in the, of those in the category of G-spot because they are never to be found. <laughs> um, is this an issue all syndicates who operate like this face? And what forfeits for the season could be introduced, especially for those in the final category who think turning up to even one is too much? 
This is, uh, I'm really glad he's brought this up because this is absolutely an issue in every syndicate I've ever heard of. What do you think, Patrick? Um, I, I've got to say, it sounds like there's a lot of people on this syndicate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, uh... <laughs> yeah, there could be like one, one minibus and one blister. A few noodles and a few wicket keepers and the rest G-spots. I think those who do actually put the work in on syndicates get so much out of it. Like even just when I was um, when I was quite a lot younger, I was on a, on a syndicate where we hardly shot anything. But everyone actually really put quite a lot of effort in. And you sort of, you know, it's quite good to see kind of what happens behind the scenes. Yeah, I think you'd, you'd enjoy it more, wouldn't you? You'd appreciate oh, yeah, it. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like gardening and plants. If you really tend to it, you, like, you get a lot out of it when it all comes in bloom and all looks good and stuff. I don't know if that's similarity. but Yeah, it's the satisfaction you get from having tried at something and um, uh, and, and done it. You know, I made my own sausages, game sausages recently and made the most god-awful <laughs> mess. Um, but they were, you know, and they're probably not the best. They taste, they taste good. Yeah, they are, they? No, they're really nice. But, yeah, um, yeah. you know, they're probably not the world's greatest sausages and they're certainly not the world's most evenly shaped sausages. Um, but, yeah, the, the fact of having done it made me really enjoy the process of eating them as well. The world's greatest sausage would be uh, would be quite a thing. That would be a hotly contested. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's, that's got to happen. That's got to happen. <laughs> yeah. It, so I don't know where that would be, but that's a competition. <laughs> I feel like there's probably a competition in Germany, isn't there? I suspect there is. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Very much in, like to in go. Munich. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so this is kind of like so buying let days is like buying Gordon's slow gin for the supermarket, and then joining a syndicate and doing your work days is like making your own slow gin. You get a lot more from it. Mm, very and true. He's yeah. saying that there's loads of people uh, in this never to be found category that he labels g-spot uh he's I, saying quite a lot about his prowess in the bedroom there isn't he with that label <laughs> uh so he okay his real question is what forfeits for the season could be introduced for each of these categories and we love a forfeit or a fine or similar they should always be made to stand at number nine or number zero yeah that's a good idea, actually. The thing with a little syndicate shoot is like peg four is never always the best. No, exactly, because it's so sort of chaotic. <laughs> you, you need like the syndicate captain to be like, right, this, this, you know, he, he'll go to the drive and be like, are oh, you peg seven here? But yeah, yeah, that's the one. Everyone else might as well go home. <laughs> We've all been there for that. So they need to decide what the best peg is. And then if you have not been there and rolled your sleeves up on all the work days, you basically can't be that peg and you have to move aside. I like that. Yeah, I like it too. Um, rigged draws. I'm always in favour of rigging the draw. Yeah. Mm. Well, in what way? Though? Well, Go just on. either making it so that somebody gets lots of shooting, but more often making sure that somebody gets no shooting. I just think it's funny. You know, you know, if you've got like a walk one, stand one syndicate, and you've got like an A team and a B team, <laughs> you get like the guys who sort of, oh, we're going to stand this drive, and the others, oh, we're going to walk this drive, and you're like, oh bollocks, I really wanted to walk this drive because you know there's going to be like loads of woodcock or some or some widgeon or something getting off a splash. Or That's exactly where this comes in. It's like if yeah. you don't turn up to the work days, you're never in the right. Position. You get to walk the really hilly ones. <laughs> The, the six mile blank in. <laughs> so the point here is like, don't don't hold back. Be obvious. Like if you're not turning up to the work days, you might as well not bother. I think the other thing to uh, appreciate is that every syndicate ends 
up with everyone falling out. And then it has to kind of, you know, every syndicate I've ever known. <laughs> and my favorite one, I was, I was at a shoot in Wiltshire with, um, there's a, the former political editor of the Telegraph was a member of the shoot and a couple of other sort of journalists and, and, and authors and so on. And I was talking about how people always fall out on uh, syndicates. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's terrible. That happens here all the time. They said, <laughs> uh, somebody reviewed somebody else's book and essentially said it was fucking awful. <laughs> and I was saying to them, well, every syndicate does end in an argument, but not usually in an argument quite like that. That's bizarre. National press based yeah, argument. Exactly. You can sort yeah. of imagine his writing is almost as bad as his shooting kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's quite funny, really. Oh, I really enjoy that. Yeah, so basically, don't hold back. Like, people have got to pull their weight, haven't they? Um, otherwise, the whole system falls apart. And But also accept that there's always going to be people who do more than their fair share. They do more, yeah, exactly. You can't have complete... And also, the other thing is, you know, I think that syndicates work best when you have kind of self-aware members. You think, okay, well, they do a hell of a lot of work, so like I'll always do the lunch. Or, you know, they do a hell of a lot of work, so I'll always provide the chibolathers or you know, whatever it is. Yeah. You're absolutely right you just hope that these people aren't the ones also turning up for the free lunch as well. yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and you always get those people as well i think pick your syndicate members carefully that's uh that's that's always yeah uh, oh, it's tricky do. isn't it yeah oh, we've tricky. talked about this before i'd like to do uh like a, a you know building the perfect syndicate you know who oh yeah who we've done that in shooting times about 54 times i think in the past oh. uh, in the past 10 years yeah, there's no such thing as an original story in our world is there <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the the shooting times shoot review template <laughs> yeah indeed yeah. <laughs> right so uh lazarus luigi ash and now patrick are all members of the most noble order of the garters and will shortly be in receipt of their very own set of the highly exclusive guns on pegs podcast shooting sock garters uh, if you two have a shooting confession, quandary or query that you'd like us and our guests to help you with, or if you've got an unpopular opinion and you'd like a set of garters, do drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. Um, before we move on, I've got one more piece of correspondence to share. Um, you might remember um, that back in episode one of this series, Dan Cooper from Weber came along and gave us an amazing uh, Ro Carpaccio recipe, didn't he? Um, and one of our Absolutely. listeners, Stephen Dix, has been in touch and he wrote... I'm a huge fan of the podcast and often re-listen to my favorite old ones, particularly when I have yet to be converted friends in the car with me. Driving from North London to a sim day near Chichester and then up to Stratford-upon-Avon that afternoon to stay at Mike Robinson's The Woodsman before attending the game fair on Sunday was a perfect example. A fellow gun and my wife were both subjected to several rounds of What's That You're Drinking and Whose Bird Is It Anyway and are both now <laughs> eager listeners. My wife, in particular, enjoyed listening to the Weber cooking segment, so much so that she, in fact, asked me to defrost a roe loin from the freezer and cook up the carpaccio this weekend. Uh, he sent us in some pictures um, of their efforts, which look pretty amazing. We'll share them on our social media channels. Um, but I'm pretty sure that Steve uh, deserves some garters for that, don't you think, Chris? Absolutely. Anyone that's willing to put in that effort. Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen the pictures as well, and he did a decent job, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, really, it looks really good. Um, Carpaccio is good stuff, actually. Yeah, it's good really stuff. good. Um, and as luck would have it, um, we've got another recipe from Dan uh, to share now. So uh, have a listen to this, Patrick. Dan, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Hello, it's great to be back. Good to see you again, Dan. I uh, After last time, you got my mouth watering big time. <laughs> uh, I can't wait to hear what you've got for us. Excellent. Yeah, no, well, I'm very excited about this because... This is a recipe that um, 
I did a little bit of tweaking to myself, but it was inspired by when I used to live in London, um, and that doesn't sound very gamey in itself, but um, down the road from from my flat was a, a, a sort of kebab shop, if you like, called the, uh, the Cypress or Cypress Mangle. And it was a brilliant place. It had this wonderful big trough of charcoal embers as you walked in. Really small little uh, restaurant with some tables and chairs in, in the rather sort of dingy back. Um, but one of the things that they would cook there were these um, uh, grilled quails. Now, um, they would put a lovely spice seasoning on, which I later learned was the uh, Razel Hanout, which I'll talk about later on. And it was finished with some pomegranate molasses. Now, I got so inspired by this recipe that I um, took it back and started to develop it. But I found that it worked even better with partridge. So Mm -hmm. um, I... uh, uh, the, the way that I do it is I take my partridge and I have a rotisserie for my charcoal barbecue. Now, Weber have rotisserie um, attachments for almost every single one of our barbecues that, that we make. So if you have a Weber barbecue, um, just have a look. Um, you can check out on Weber.com and you'll be able to find the rotisserie attachment for your grill. So I take my partridge and, and rub it in the Razel Hanout. This is a, a pre-made spice mix you can buy in most supermarkets. And it's um, typical of Morocco or Tunisia and it's a mixture of uh, cumin and cayenne and cinnamon and all sorts of wonderful exotic spices. Um, So just rub that all over the bird and then um, roast it uh, indirect, which is where you split the coals either side on the barbecue and the um, rotisserie will just gently turn the partridge um, and while it's cooking, all those fats on the bird will self-baste it, making it beautifully glistening and crispy skinned um and uh yeah when it's cooked through i use a little thermometer i recommend everyone who's barbecuing to to get a little digital probe or a thermometer of some sort and just to bring the game meat up to around uh 70 degrees and then took it off let it rest and then finish it with some uh, pomegranate molasses and this recipe is best served with just simply salad and chips i think it sounds amazing <laughs> That's a good one, isn't it? It really is. I was just thinking, because rotisserie, it's not really something that many people do at home, is it? It's not, I wouldn't say it's normal, but it just occurred to me, and you, when you were explaining it, self-basting, that's something that actually with game, because obviously you can dry it out quite quickly, the way that it would sort of rotate would actually really lend itself quite well to game. Absolutely. And I love cooking game in this way. I've done pheasants. Um, I do a lot of duck. Um, in fact, I do a lot of duck on my rotisserie. It's one of my favorite ones. And then um, crum- come Christmas time, I do my turkeys on it. I think that my rotisserie gets almost as much action as just grilling straightforward on the on the cooking grates. And um, yeah, if you've got, like I said, if if you've got a, a lot of game and you've got a, a Weber grill, look out for a rotisserie because it will really help bring some more um, repertoire into your barbecue menu. Yeah, I'm just sort of envisaging people now trying to sort of jerry-rig something because they haven't got a rotisserie. <laughs> yeah. You need a small child to keep the handle turning, don't you? <laughs> well, the, like I said, going back to the inspiration of this recipe, when I actually first tried it, it was just cooked over charcoal uh, in a spatchcock style. So you could do this in spatchcock, but I think it works best as, as rotisserie. Well, I mean, I'm going to have to have a route through the through the freezer and see if I can find the last few partridges lurking at the bottom somewhere um i'm looking forward to that yeah absolutely yeah dan thanks for coming back on uh, and and as i said l- last time just 
listeners, this is this is a challenge here. George and I are looking for photos. We want to we want to see <laughs> we want to see what what gets created. And obviously, if you send something really awesome in, it's going to deserve a bit of a mention. So there'll be garters on their way for anyone that can as well. Oh, yeah, I'd like so, to, I'd like to see some pictures as well, definitely. So send them. Yeah, more. definitely. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, I guess we'll we'll also say is if you do send in uh, some pictures of you trying out these recipes, we'll share them on our socials as well, so that everybody else can get a get a feel for the kind of thing that people are creating. So yeah, um, great, Dan. Thanks ever so much. Absolute pleasure. Bye for Cheers, now. Cheers, Dan. Cheers. <laughs> bye bye. So I, I've got to own up. Um, we recorded that piece and we have inserted it a short while ago. So it's not perfectly live because this isn't just, you know, epic levels of production. And since that piece, I've gone and got myself a Weber smoke fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and oh, my God, it's opened my eyes to a new way of, of cooking. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the pellet grill one that I dreamed of. Uh, and it's just unbelievable the way it cooks. It's like so different. They used to, to have um, in... Uh medieval kitchens they used to have this little type of dog that's called like a spitz hund that would run and, and keep the rotisserie turning but the, the type of dog has now become extinct but if any listeners have like a small cocker spaniel <laughs> yeah you just need to I think, rig up a rig up a sausage on a string kind of thing just in front a violation of, it. of um, animal welfare <laughs> laws i'm sure but i think you get you know a hundred garters at least if you could. it doesn't count as exercise <laughs> it does sound good though that doesn't it so i'm going online tonight and buying myself a rotisserie uh and i'm giving that a go and as that was a couple of weeks ago we've now got some parts just coming up and that is happening here at home so exciting makes my mouth water that yeah well nearly supper time um right i think we should talk about this book don't you i do i really want to get into this yeah so uh Patrick, Chris and I have both read your book. Um, I can't speak for Chris, but um, I, as I've said to you before, absolutely loved it. Um, and um, what I want to ask, what was it that you were hoping to achieve um, when you set out to write the book? I sort of think in a way that I don't really like setting out to achieve anything when I'm writing. That to me feels as though you're going in search then of a, a pre sort of imagined story um i just kind of you know i, I won't have an idea but then so the idea was you know that i had these 10 birds uh that i wanted to learn more about and i wanted to know why they're going and what they mean to people but sort of from that point it's a kind of following your nose sort of situation so you know for example with the bittern that chapter started up on a roof with a thatcher uh, and the Thatcher said to me that um, for four generations, their family have got reed from uh, a family in North Norfolk. So four generations of Dodson have got their reed from four generations of Randall. Now, people who manage reed beds um, essentially sustain bittern habitat. So you're just kind of going on this journey to try and find this person. So I spent two weeks in Norfolk waiting till I could see this guy, Henry Randall, and I found them sort of 10 miles inland um, because he'd been priced out of the, the North Norfolk coast as a reed cutter. So that's just a good example of sort of not so much setting out to try and find something. It's just sort of seeing what there is to find and seeing how that all kind of comes together as a story or, or doesn't. Um, and I think you've got to be really... You've, you've got to accept when you go out to write something that you're going to write what you find. And if that's sort of hard for you to do um, as somebody who writes about other things or somebody who's involved in a community or a group of people, then, then fine. You've got to be prepared to do that. 
I'm keen to understand actually on that exact point. How, now that you've published it and lots of people have had a chance to read it, what's the reaction been like? Because I mean, it's it it can be divisive. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, uh, you know, I um, at the game fair, I was I was walking towards our stand, and there was a man there holding the book who'd loved it uh, and wanted me to sign it. He latterly trapped me down, and there was a woman shouting at him because he was holding a copy of this book. And uh, <laughs> and I later spoke to him and, and he said that she was really angry about um, the chapter that explores Raptor persecution um, or a part of that chapter explores Raptor persecution, the Hen Harrier chapter. Yeah, and, and, and this man said that he said to this lady, but you know, it's, it's, it's a book that sort of confronts hard truths. Uh, and she sort of accepted that, but felt that, you know, it wasn't something that the, the field sports community should be doing. On the flip side, uh, you know, the publisher had quite a lot of correspondence from um, a couple of conservationists who didn't want the book to be published. Um, and their feeling is that uh, the views of gamekeepers shouldn't really be aired or, or, you know, should be aired sparingly. But essentially, you know, they felt that I'd spent far too much time um, with uh, keepers in the course of writing this book and that a mainstream publisher um, shouldn't be sort of sullying themselves by involving themselves with a, a person like me. So, I mean, it's, it's sort of fascinating. I wanted to ask about that, actually, because it, it, as you say, it's published by HarperCollins, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, not a traditional field sports publisher. I'm sure that if you'd gone to one of the sort of field sports publishing houses, it would have been a breeze to get published. I'm sure yeah, it wasn't yeah. too much of a challenge in anyway. But did you feel like it was a bit of a victory getting it published by uh, what you might call a mainstream publisher? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, it, it, that, that's right. What's really interesting is that 25, 30 years ago, uh, publishers like HarperCollins and Faber were publishing all sorts of shooting books. Um, you know, often books on like, you know, how to shoot more pigeons or, or you know, grouse shooting for beginners or you know, how to be a better grouse keeper. Um, so that's quite interesting. But then I, I think what I've also found really interesting is that there were a few conservationists and rewilders who were really sort of up in arms. Uh, there were a few kind of people within the industry who were like, hang on a second, we shouldn't be airing our um, dirty washing, as it were. But then the kind of literary press have just said, like, what a fantastic book. And and actually, interestingly, some sort of uh, of the more kind of radical literary press have praised the book for going out there and talking to people who aren't ordinarily listened to. And I think that's really fascinating. And that actually is what I wanted to do, I suppose, um, was was to, to, to go and speak to these people who know so much. Um, but, you know, I mean, that Thatcher, for example, I saw him in Norfolk not long ago. And he said to me that, you know, talking to him about Bittens meant a lot to him because he feels that people don't really listen to people like him because he doesn't have a degree, he doesn't have a master's degree and so on. In that sense, is the, the title, does that have a dual meaning? Um, you know, the song of the bird and the, the stories of these people who don't get listened to, they, you know, you might never get those stories out of people. Yeah, no, I think so, definitely. Um, you know, and, and understanding the ways in which people's sort of sense of identity um, is is kind of created through their relationship with with birds, I think is is really interesting. Um, and, and also, I mean, there's a lot of talking to poets in the book and writers and artists whose work is inspired by these birds. So I suppose as well, the book was trying to understand what we'd be set to lose culturally um, if these birds went. Yeah. I found that, that that chapter you've alluded to on the hen harrier, I mean, to be honest, out of all the chapters that I knew were in there, even before you published it, that was the one I really wanted to read the most because of obviously what we do as, as a as a job and the fact that it gets so much airtime. Yeah, yeah. And it and it was it was fascinating because you interview, 
you interview someone in that chapter, his name's gone from me, it's escaped me for a second, but he's quite, the, the, didn't he, he'd done some time. Luke, Luke Steele, Luke yeah, Steel, yeah. That's it, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but, um, and you get some absolute extreme opinion, but it, I just found it really interesting because we've got different motivations, but there, there is middle ground in this. <laughs> Yeah, there is. Even even with people who you know has, I mean, Luke's done Luke's done you know, time yeah. and a fair bit of time, um, but you know he's a very thoughtful person and he's sort of moving towards the center ground. And I think he he does have a lot of passion for the natural world. And it's often the things that he's saying are actually quite similar to things that are being said elsewhere by um, you know. And also, I mean. One thing I was really interested in with that book, and I've been thinking a lot about it, is is how we we treat gamekeepers. And in the past, what gamekeepers... So gamekeepers are, to me, on yeah. the front line of conservation. But sort of, we sometimes, collectively, as an industry, as a sport, haven't allowed them to be as effective as they could be because, you know, they're sort of... Um, they're working too hard essentially you know they they are putting on too many days they could be doing so that was a really interesting element of that chapter i, 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 I sort of we've touched on it slightly but it, you know it's it is a very balanced book and you do try and you know go out of your way to talk to both sides um there's that there's that stat isn't there you know when people talk about bbc bias and when they do the research they find that people on the left think it's by yeah, right yeah, bias yeah. people on the right yeah. think it's got and that's exactly what so, happened with this with the sort of extremes of the you know um yeah um, so i want to, uh, is is there anybody you haven't upset with the book <laughs> um, me there were, there were some people I who it. i thought would you know and, and i and i don't i don't like to i like to talk to all sorts of that's really what you know i don't like to uh to upset people um i mean mark avery loved the book who who of course founded wild justice um you know and he's sort of very pally with chris packham chris packham was tweeting about the book which was, <laughs> and it, you know it's a book that sort of extols the virtues of snaring at points through other people's work but you know so it was it does so much that i think it would be hard to love all of it or hard to agree with everything that's said but also it would be hard to sort of hate every part of it as well. Did, did, did Mark Avery love the book because he should love the book because it's good to be building bridges type thing, even though Wild Justice doesn't ever intend to build bridges. But you kind of know what I mean from a PR point of view. It makes him look a little bit more friendly if he says he loves the book. Or, you know, do you, do, you, do you think he's absolutely being genuinely honest there? I mean, I'm having dinner with him tomorrow night, so I'll ask him. <laughs> um, um, I was saying to him, I hope they're going to have grouse on the menu. Um, I think and i don't want to i think that working together is quite in vogue um and that he sort of i i don't i, I uh, recognizes that and wants to kind of get on board with that a little bit more because in the past and look i've written yeah. things in the past that i wish i hadn't written and i've written for people in the past who don't know anything about field sports but who wanted me to write for them and to sort of stir up essentially you know, don't you think it's awful that, you know, woke people think this about shooting and sort of my visceral reaction is actually, hang on a second, like, do they? But that's not really how journalism works. So this book sort of allow or books, long form allows nuances. Um, and I, or, I mean, you know, there are quite a few ornithologists, bird ecologists who have uh, tweeted in a public forum, but also who've said to me that actually, you know, reading this book makes them think that, you know, they could work with shooting. 
Um, I think particularly because I talk to great partridge keepers and wild bird keepers and so on. Um, and also people involved in shooting who are doing things to do with lapwings and so on. But that, and that's what I, that's what I really, um, wanted to, to do. So that's not really answering your question, but. No, but I, I, it's, it, it makes me think, though, when 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 you when you think about the community that are on the supposed other side of us, and and the thing I hate the most is they they sort of somehow get to call themselves conservationists, which is just wrong in every sense of the level. In that we're all conservationists, I think. Uh, there are aspects of of their side that are certainly not conservationists; they're one dimensional. Yeah. There's aspects yeah. of our side that are one dimensional; they're not conservationists. Yeah. But the overlap. Must oh no, be it massive. is. Yeah, and I also one thing that I found really interesting is that um, you know I didn't write this book as like, "Hello, I'm the editor of Shooting Times. Can we talk about this?" It was like, "Hey, can you know can we talk about this?" Because I do a lot of other things, and I don't see myself solely as the editor of Shooting Times. Occasionally, I go and spend all day with somebody, often quite kind of um, politically radical people, with whom I sort of really get on and and uh and agree with them on lots of things we sort of discovered and at the end of the day they would say oh and you edit shooting times uh and they would say oh my uncle used to read shooting times or i used to read shooting times when i was young um and what i became very aware of in the course of writing this book is that that great gulf as it were um i think is a relatively new thing so you know not that long ago people collected birds eggs and people were into wildfowling or that uncle might have been into wildfowling and that was how they sort of got into um into field sports so that's a really interesting thing, I think. And and the more we can talk about the um, the crossover and the more we can work with people who sort of have, um, you know, uh, similar um, aims, then, then the more we'll... Achieve. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, uh, on, you travelled around a, a, a fair bit for this. So we've already yeah. talked about, um, uh, you know, being on a, on, on the, in the dunes, wasn't it? Uh, on newest and... Um, on the Macca. So you, so, so you put, yeah, so you put the miles in, you met a huge range of really interesting people. Of all the people who you spoke to and of all the locations that you went to, who were the, who were the most which interesting were the places that, that, that sort of stood out as the, of really, who really made an impression on you? I think the, the Lapwing chapter, um, that sort of starts in Rochdale. Um, lapwings, which are, are wading birds, which are in sort of dire decline, used to roost there on the roofs of old mills um, because we sort of built on their roosting sites outside of town. So they had to kind of take refuge on what we've left behind. Um, and then I spent um, a day um, on the Mosses, which is just outside Manchester with a guy who's campaigning to essentially get sort of the lapwing recognised as the official bird of Trafford um you know and he's got all of these campaigns to get and i just thought that was it's real sort of wonderful kind of like gorilla conservation almost and and um there's a lot of anti-fracking stuff that comes into that as well so that was really wonderful and then at the end of that chapter i go and see um charles grisdale um who runs a duck shoot but is also a kind of he's done more for lapwings than anybody else in wales and he has probably the last breeding population of lapwings in wales um and those two guys, I think, would have very different views on lots of things. But they're both people who have dedicated their lives to trying to save the same bird. Um, and I've, I found a lot of what they've got to say really quite moving. Um, and when I read it back, I really, it, it, I find it, it sort of... Um, I love that chapter. I absolutely, I thought you're absolutely right. The, the similarities between those two. And I can imagine sitting in the pub, watching yeah. them chat being I, like at first, like wanting to punch <laughs> each other type thing, but actually realizing they should be bezies. Uh, you know, I, I really can see that. And, and, and actually the, the background of that chat you're talking about was, was really interesting, you know, going to raves and then sort of going to watch yeah, the yeah. birds first light type thing. 
it's mad, absolutely mad. But it just shows you that there are there is so much ground in all of yeah, this. Yes, no, definitely, definitely. I came away from it feeling really despondent about um, the state of of nature in the UK, but also just so overwhelmed by the passion and love that that people have for wildlife. And that's right from, I mean, the end of the book, I think, I forget now, so long ago, but Lindsay Waddell, uh, that grouse keeper, and he sits there talking about why he cares so much. And he sort of thinks very deeply. And then he says that, you know, he's had things in the palm of his hand, um, insects and eggs and chicks and things. And, and it's just, it's really, uh, yeah, I find it, I find it, um, occasionally people tweet at me, saying, you know, just been reading your book, you know, and I'm in tears now. As I say, they're sort of angry or whatever, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, mate. But no, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There is. It's, it's yeah. I, I was really inspired by by people's efforts. Certainly. I I was intrigued about what you just said about it making you quite despondent because I got that too. I I sort of slammed the book down on my uh, on my sun lounger once whilst I was on holiday, and uh, I said to my wife, I was like, you know, we humans have just fucked this all right up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's it, catastrophic. But it's, and it's, there's a lady in the book, Katrina Porteous, who's a really, really brilliant poet. Um, and she talks about being a fatalist, essentially, um, and sort of, you know, the great gifts that capitalism um, has given us. But at, at, at the same time, you know, it's destroyed sort of everything that she writes about. And, and it's a really difficult tension there. I think, I think one thing that I'm really interested in um, is the way in which I think a lot of nature writing can be quite simplistic. Like all we have to do is this, 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 and this, and then we'll get the birds back. And that's not, you know, and actually often nature writing doesn't involve people because as soon as you start involving people, it becomes a lot harder. Yeah, it's a bit, that's a bit um, like that, um, that Yellowstone wolves thing. All you've got to do is bring back the wolves and everything will be fine again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it just makes you want to shoot yourself. But I, I, I also think it's interesting that people sort of think that, um, and there's a guy, I think that simply, there's a guy in the book, um, I actually had a dream quite recently uh, that I was talking to him again. And um, he lives at a new age community called Findhorn. And uh, he said to me, when we'd been walking around together talking about trees, he set up a, a charity um, that, that sort of tries to restore forestry. Um, he said to me that, you know, you understand, don't you, that what we really need is love. And and that sounds sind sort of pretty woo woo, but actually I kind of I kind of like think that that is sort of the point that the book moves to is that if people could talk to each other more and sort of a talking as an act of love maybe, um, then I think there would be um, you know more reason for hope. Yeah, I, that's a very interesting angle on it. So uh, you you spoke to people with very differing views possibly from your own um on a lot of subjects yes yeah, did anybody yeah. change your mind or did you change anybody's mind i know you probably didn't set out to change anybody's mind but um yeah well definitely i mean everybody said things that made me think and i mean that was one of them you know and the, the thing that katrina porteous was saying about sort of fatalism was another um i don't have particularly strong views on things other than that i think we should listen to each other and that we should sort of try to not be um sort of entrenched in our positions there was there was i mean a couple of people have said uh oh you know that that book is fine but patrick galbraith doesn't commit to any sort of position and therefore i don't really know what i meant to think of the book because um you know and but that's sort of the point 
Uh, and I don't. Yeah. No, not I'm not trying, trying to. I'm not. It's not. It's not a polemic. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to convince people one way or the other of anything. Um, and I think writing kind of fails uh, when it does that. Um, so, so yeah, my views were changed. If I have, I don't really have that many that many views. <laughs> <laughs> just, just bring it back to shooting yeah. for a second all roads um, all roads <clears throat> especially especially <laughs> on this podcast yeah especially the shooting podcast um, I, I i found myself reflecting a lot on i don't know us as a business what we do what i do what i enjoy based on sort of what i was reading has it has it made you well i suppose what i'm trying to ask is has it made you think about what shooting needs to do in order to remain or become even more sustainable just last forever that's partly perhaps what i wanted to do at some point in the process was to challenge myself uh not in terms of my views but about what i do and i do think that um you know if we want to get gray partridges back in a meaningful way um from the sort of brink of extinction that they're teetering on in lots of places then um you know putting down lots and lots of red legs isn't isn't the way to go you know the book sort of and and i wanted to be sure i think of of and having conversations with like gerald gray for example the old gray partridge keeper um at hillborough you know he says that quite often they would get people who would come to shoot the gray partridges and they would say oh we used to have lots of grays and he would say to them and did you have red legs when you had lots of grays and they would say no no and we now shoot you know twice a week and we used to shoot twice a year (laughs) saying well that's your that's your answer um so I, i i think you know i do think that keepers are part of the the puzzle in terms of in terms of nature restoration and sort of empowering them to to be as effective as they can possibly be is something that i think we um really need to do the 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 frustrating thing about that particular part is that it kind of in my mind anyway it always comes back to money oh 100 yeah and 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 the thing is is that you know uh keepers used to be paid next to nothing you know, and, and if you were a sort of underkeeper, you'd possibly go off to the workhouse at the end of, you know, so, so it's like, how do you, you know, and, and the sort of people aren't as wealthy as they once were and as I say, you know, labor costs more. So it's, but I, I do think that, and it's so complex, but um, I was with some guys at Bright Seeds today who were just saying that the conservation side of their business um, is absolutely booming. They said, you know, farmers are coming in and saying, look, I've got, you know, x thousand acres and i want to put 1500 acres uh you know down as 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 wildflowers um because of grants to do so so i think that you know there will be places where shooting becomes a byproduct of conservation um not where we're sort of doing a bit of conservation to slightly greenwash maybe what we're doing in a way um which is the case in in some places um undeniably um so i think yeah the future is bright if we can love each other more, as that guy was saying at that New Age community. I've, Not I've, a keen shot, that man. I, I feel like I need a spliff now. <laughs> <laughs> I find that whole concept absolutely... What's that you're smoking? <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other podcast that I think you and, my, you and I might have to start, Patrick. <laughs> I, I find that whole concept about, you know, farmers suddenly putting down, you know, thousands of acres of wildflower. I mean, it's going to be awesome. It's slightly... Uh, 
given the year that we're now in when actually hold on suddenly we need to be slightly more self-sufficient than we were uh, it's sort of slightly more divisive but like take two years ago payment by results and all that sort of stuff it's lending itself because per- we are an importing nation uh, but it's lending itself absolutely perfectly to shooting and wildlife is just going to benefit so much if we do go down that route i don't know if yeah. we do need to be self-sufficient that much a different debate but it could be awesome couldn't it can you imagine Grey partridge levels on some places without even meaning to meaning to be that way. I, th- I think the next five years are really critical. Um, you know, critical for conservation and critical for shooting as part of that. And it's kind of time that you know, it's it's shooting's opportunity really um, to to show how effective a part of the jigsaw it can be. I went I went to um, a shot at Catton Hall. Uh, quite a few people will know it. Qu- quite a quite a big shoot really. Uh, and they've got. It's an incredible project they've got on the go there. They've had all sorts of grants for this, that, and the other. And there's so much wildflower everywhere. It was originally, you know, plots of woodland planted for shooting, which which you talk about in the book as well. Uh, and um, But then they've got wildflower everywhere and they've got all these sort of river projects going on, the rest of it. And the place is just, a, it's a joy to be at because of it. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. There were guys saying that today. Um, occasionally, you know, the keepers I was talking to today, I didn't even really get their names, but... They were really like on it with what they and they were saying that one of the things they like about having um, um, sort of wild um, flower mixes rather than rather than just maize is that when people go to shoot there they see all of these little birds mm. um, yeah. you know and it just looks much prettier and a guy called Mike Swan Dr Mike Swan of the GWCT was saying to me that he wants to do a piece about identifying the little Tweety birds as he um, uh, put it in his very kind of you know, self-effacing way uh, that people see on a shoot because mm-hmm. that's that's really cool. And if and if people can, oh, did you see those yellow hammers or whatever, or did you see those linnets or whatever? That that's you know that's yeah. They're um, not they're not all really just cool. LBJs, are they? Yeah, exactly. exactly <laughs> yeah, um, I agree. Uh, that that's always something I I sort of ask shoots, and I do understand. You know, maize is probably still the dominant crop that's going to deliver easy returns on your shoot, and it's super simple and all. Done very poorly this year because of how dry it's been. It, it, indeed, uh, but it is just so one-dimensional, isn't it? And we've got to look at that because yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a risk, as it were, in terms of sustainability. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do encourage anyone to read this book. If you well, put it in the put it in the show notes. Put the link. Yeah, absolutely in the show will. Notes and and I think we more. were saying you were saying at the game fair, Patrick, that um, you make more money if people get the audio book, right? That is true, and I, they can I, listen, listen to me reading it, which is you know. <laughs> I can't believe you read. How long did it take you to read the whole thing back? It took, it took me three days. And here's a really good point okay i was sitting the guy who was doing it the like audio guy who's got this sort of like geezer wearing like a, a different american football shirt every day and then at, at the end of it he's like oh i love red stag stalking me and my dad are my mates go every year and it's just like that is that is classic like you know in 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 places you least expect um <laughs> fantastic. So good. and, and, and I, I just thought he was like you know not enjoying it at all and he was like no i was really into that and uh yeah and and so. um anybody listening to this podcast there's a fair chance that you you also like an audiobook and um i am a um a, a dyed in the wool audiobook fan and sometimes the author reading their own work isn't great this is not one of the cases um <laughs> i can highly highly no, I recommend am, I am actually, the, the guy said you know what you're really good at this and there's somebody who you know i don't often get people telling me that i'm really good at things i haven't done before and there's lots of things like table tennis that i would love to be good at and bmx that i'm not good at <laughs> so you know i walked out of shoreditch the recording studio every day feeling wonderful so um 
Yeah, so oh, I, so, I yeah. highly recommend the audiobook. Chris, I think you read it in... in uh, I, I read it in old school format with my glasses on. Yeah. Uh, so, Patrick, where is it you get the most margin if people buy this? Do Amazon screw you over? Amazon do... Uh, yeah, Waterstones, Waterstones is always good. Uh, but but audiobook, audiobook is, is, is good. And I imagine lots of your listeners listen because they spend lots of time in the car going shooting or driving off to do whatever it is that they do maybe something agricultural so um so audiobook works really well yeah get both get both get a hard copy for your grandma for christmas <laughs> or your grandfather pre-order the paperback get the kindle <laughs> i've got two copies i've got one signed copy by you with your 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 handwriting which is barely legible which I that's true <laughs> really embarrassing actually people people say to me oh you write so beautifully can you sign this and it's like oh. <laughs> like you've done it with your foot <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not joking. Yeah. It looks like that. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. I need to work on that actually. <laughs> um, um, good. Well, look. Uh, thank you very much, guys. Well, look, be- before you go, Patrick, since you last came on, uh, we we've got this new feature. It's very. It's not new at all anymore. It's been a while since you've been on. Uh, it's called Desert Island Shooting, uh, and basically, one last day, shooting's going to be banned tomorrow i hate saying that but anyway let's just assume it was going uh the day after tomorrow where would it be for this one last day money's no object time isn't an issue travel whatever you can do what you like who would you have with you where would you go so this year i'm going up to the outer hebrides to shoot uh grouse over one reasonably well-behaved golden setter um and i've been going up with the same group of guys for like years now since we were like early 20s um and it's not very expensive but it's really good fun and it's probably sort of people often say oh you know it's a great shoot it's an hour from london and i think that's not you know i really want to go somewhere i want to do kind of three days i want lots of hangovers i want to have that feeling of waking up slightly hungover and thinking where the fuck am i and you look out the window and you think shit this is amazing this is beautiful it's kind of lunar um so that would be definitely the outer hebrides for sort of wild, very sustainable, walked up stuff, mixed bag. Perfect. So so this is this is a classic Desert Island shooting that you can do perfectly legitimately and actually not that expensive in the ground. And it is kind of a desert island, although not a desert. So you know, <laughs> Far from it. It works. It works, yeah. <laughs> although there are those who would have you believe that Heather Moreland is a desert. That is true. That is true. That is true. That pops up in the book as well. <laughs> yes. Oh, very good. Excellent. And very enjoyable. Good to have you on. And thanks for coming, Patrick. Thank you very well, much. Final, final question. How does uh, your second appearance compare with your first? A lot of the jobs. The, the, I think I had a, I can't remember what I was drinking. I think it was some really horrible like cider or uh, something. So this cocktail, I know, I know I've got to go off to a drinks party. I feel quite It drunk, was uh, McEwen's, uh, no, Tenants. 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 Oh, God. No, no, no. no. Really... That surely, did, did it, I descended that low. Did someone else? Yeah, no, Patrick had... Well, me. Well, I've really moved up in the world. <laughs> it's because you went to school up in Scotland. You're going back to your route. You're behind the bus <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sitting here in my kilt. You can't see it. But... <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Cheers, Patrick. Thanks ever so much for coming along. Um, right, so before we go, as per usual, there is one final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve or by sending us your unpopular opinions nominating your shooting heroes or by getting in touch to let us know where you've been listening also if you do give that rotisserie partridge recipe a try let us know send us some pictures we'd really like to see them 
drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com and if we read any of it out in the next episode or any future episodes we will send you some garters we will be back in a couple of weeks time with another episode but until then thanks very much for listening and goodbye Thank you.